Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest edition of the ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, just a few quick things to update you on. Uh, the first is the podcast book. As regular listeners will know, we've now been podcasting for over a decade and I thought it'd be nice to kind of mark that with a, with a book which discusses many of the topics that we talk about in the podcast. I asked you what your favourite podcast had been, and I'm going to use that top ten as the, a basis for for a, a book. I've started work on that. I've got a couple of the chapters done. As usual, there's never enough hours in the day. I need our planet to stop rotating so quickly. <laughs> 24 hours in the day is just not enough. Uh, but but I, I will um, obviously keep pushing that forwards, and I'll let you know as uh, as we make progress. So we're getting there. A few chapters done, a few more to go. So I'll, I'll let you know in future podcasts how that's going. But uh, it's taking shape nicely. I'd also just like to remind everyone about the app, the Ian Abernethy app that we have. Uh, we've got a new version of that coming out soon. We're also looking at maybe getting a desktop version up and running as well, because a few of you have asked about that. Uh, but the app, I update that every single week. Every week you get an exclusive video that you won't see anywhere else. Uh, in recent weeks we've had videos on uh, de-escalation skills, advanced drills for Chinto Gankaku, we've done uh, videos on chokes and strangles, um, all kinds of things. Uh, using everyday items to augment cat emotions is another one we've done. See, every week, normally uh, Monday or Tuesday, I'll, I'll add to the app an exclusive uh, new video and there's just a huge back uh, catalogue there as well. There's lots and lots of content. So it's all devised by topic, so if you wanted to explore the applications of Techie Nidan, for example, you just go into the app, find the appropriate section, and all the videos are there for you. So uh, it's gone really well. Very grateful to everyone who is supporting it. And um, it, 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 what I hoped it would be is it would build a community around the app, and we're certainly seeing that take shape now. Uh, lots of requests for content that people want to see, and I'm, I'm working away on that. So if you haven't checked the app out uh, already, you can try it out for seven days. You know, just, just find the Ian Abernethy app from wherever you normally get apps from and uh, yeah have a look at it and see what you think uh, also just want to remind people about the World Combat Association because I probably don't mention that enough in the podcast but the WCA is a group that uh, myself and Peter Considine are running and that's for pragmatic martial artists all over the globe uh, we've got you know great people all over so we've got people in Australia Canada the US uh, all over Europe uh, so if the uh, you're somebody who wants to practice your martial art in a pragmatic way, you want supporting doing that, but you don't want day-to-day -day interference, uh, then the WACA may be for you. So you can check out the website or drop me an email, ian at ianabernethy.com, and I can send you a brochure. So you can see what it is and see if uh, you want to be part of that inner circle, if you like. Okay, so to this month's topic. Uh, this month we're going to talk about reinventing violence. I've, I've been wanting to do this podcast for a little while, but now seems the right time to do it. It seems a timely time to do it, because that issue, it's been a long-standing problem in the martial arts, this, but it's getting more problematic, uh, and problematic in new ways, some of which we've not previously seen before. It's a problem that's very infused in martial culture. I'm seeing it a lot, um, and, and it's a very dangerous and insidious problem. So that's what I'd like to, to talk about. Now, so just, just briefly explain what I, what I mean by this. My background before being a full-time martial arts instructor, my, my, the way I made a living was I was part of an engineering team. So in engineering, we say, right, okay, what's the problem? What, what do you want to have happen? What, what's the issue you've got? And then you go, right, we're going to design a solution to that. We will design and implement a solution which addresses the problem. So the problem always defines a solution. 
what I see more and more in the martial arts world is the exact opposite of that. People are saying, oh, I have the solution. I already have a solution. I have my Kung Fu, Wing Chun, BJJ, MMA, Karate, Tang Soo Do, Taekwondo, Krav Maga solution. And therefore, if the problem would suggest my solution is lacking in any way, then it is undoubtedly the problem that is at fault. And I need to reinvent it. So what we see people doing is pretending that criminal violence is something else. So therefore, that their style, which they are holding to be the most important thing, you know, that the the uh, completeness and the validity of the style is more important than anything. So if real-world evidence suggests that the style or way of practice may be lacking in some way, what an engineer would do, what a, what, what a practical person would do is go, right, okay, that's a problem. I hadn't considered that before. I need to change my solution so it fits the problem. What we see in martial arts is, no, 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 no. My solution is perfect. The problem must be altered. The problem must be changed. And we can do that within the safety of the dojo, and we can do that within the safety of our own minds. The trouble is, when that faulty solution hits reality, we have problems. And I say, if we did that in the engineering world, those bridges will collapse, those structures will fall down, these cooling systems will overheat, they will fail. And, and this is what I'm worried about that's going to happen in the, the martial arts world, this uh, reinventing violence. So it's a fairly lengthy podcast because I want to do the, the topic justice and I want to touch on all the various ways in which this can happen. But I, I hope it provides f- food for thought. Um, I, I'm aware that this may be a controversial one for some. For some it'll seem, oh yeah, that's obvious, that's self-evident. Yeah, of course that's what you do. For others, particularly those who are putting... Uh, solution before problem that they may mistakenly think i'm having a go at given styles in this podcast and i'm not i'm really not i like i've seen good and bad of all martial arts right all martial arts when done properly can provide a good solution to criminal violence if they are looking objectively at what criminal violence is and then seeking to provide the solution to that problem. You can do that from within all martial styles. You may need to look outside and get things that your art doesn't excel in, but you can do it from the basis of all martial styles. So this isn't a style thing for me at all. And I, I hope that people listening to this will remember I am a karateka, and yet I am quite critical of karate in this podcast, at least some aspects of it, in the same way that I am critical as the other style. So I'm trying to approach this subject objectively which is, I think is the only valid way in which you can approach it. So um, if you do find yourself getting irritated by the podcast or angry about it, maybe ask yourself why. Um, okay, anyway, I think that's, that's enough from the introduction. So I'll hand yourself over to me, and I hope you'll enjoy this in-depth discussion on reinventing violence. One of my all-time favourite books is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. I remember first reading the book as a child while on holiday with my parents on the Scottish island of Islay. I mean, I laughed from cover to cover at the simultaneously insightful and absurd adventures of the last earthling, Arthur Dent, and his alien friend, Ford Prefect. Today I've got the original BBC radio series on my iPhone, and it's a favourite listen on the long drives and flights that my schedule demands. 
Those who have read the book will recall the tale of some ancient, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings who want to know the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. To this end, they build a supercomputer called Deep Thought. When they ask Deep Thought what is the answer to life, the universe and everything, Deep Thought replies that this is tricky and it will take some time to work out the answer. Seven and a half million years to be exact. So seven and a half million years later, the descendants of the people who built Deep Thought gather around to hear the answer to the ultimate question. Deep Thought tells the excited masses that there is an answer to the great question, but they're not going to like it. The leaders reply that it does not matter and they really must know. Deep Thought tells them that they really won't like the answer and then goes on to state, with great gravitas, that the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is 42. Bemused by the answer they have waited seven and a half million years for, Deep Thought explains that the problem is they didn't define the initial question well enough. So then what happens is they seek to build an even greater computer to provide the ultimate question, which is integral to the remaining plot of the book. This is an amusing example of how failing to define the initial problem correctly can lead to very unsatisfying pseudo-answers. Whenever I hear it or read it, it makes me think of how this problem is so widespread in the martial arts when it comes to self-defence. If we want to have a robust self-defence solution, then we need to fully understand the nature of the problem. Otherwise, we'll end up with a useless answer. Now, this isn't a podcast on the problem. You know, we've discussed that in previous podcasts and we'll no doubt discuss it many times in future podcasts. This podcast is on what happens when martial artists fail to understand the true nature of the problem of civilian self-defense and instead seek to reinvent the problem into something more convenient for themselves. People have a pre-existing answer and to justify their answer, they reinvent the problem. The reason this can happen is because, thankfully, we live in an age where violence is rare, and for most people it's largely non-existent. This lack of natural testing means that pseudo-solutions can develop because they are never tested. If one of the many pseudo-solutions was to bump up against reality, it would be made immediately, brutally and tragically apparent that it was lacking. However, because we are lucky enough to live in an age where violent crime is relatively rare, this rarely happens, and hence the pseudo-solution can survive unchecked. So where do these pseudo-solutions come from in the first place? The answer would seem to be people swapping problems they don't know for problems they do know, and not fully appreciating the difference, and not caring to appreciate the difference either, because to do so is inconvenient. The most common expression of this reinvention of violence is the assumption that criminal violence is largely the same as martial artists fighting one of their own kind in the format that they favour. In doing this, they are failing to appreciate what criminal violence is like. And because they don't understand the question, then the answer to that question is inevitably severely lacking. We see this in the karate world when people look at kata from a karate versus karate perspective. The likes of Itosu and Motobu were clear that the karate of the kata was designed for dealing with criminal violence and not a consensual exchange with a fellow martial artist. Itosu wrote that, Karate is not intended to be used against a single opponent, but instead it is a way of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one by chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian. Motobu said that, the techniques of the kata were never designed to be used against an opponent in an arena or on a battlefield. They are, however, extremely effective when used against someone who does not understand the methods being used against them. 
i.e. a non-karateka. However, despite such firm guidance that the methods of kata were not designed for fighting other karateka, but are instead for dealing with villains and ruffians, i.e. criminals, most karateka treat kata as karate versus karate affairs, and they have to make many strange tweaks to make it work, in inverted commas. If they stuck to the traditional premise of kata being for dealing with criminals in self-defence, then they would be in a much better position to understand what kata is really showing. Now that that false practice has been established, many karateka run with it and cement these dubious practices into things like one-step, three-step and five-step sparring. Such practices are a practical dead end, but karate will seek to justify their practice through claims they are teaching things like distancing and timing. What they are missing is that the distancing and timing are an entirely different distancing and timing to that of criminal violence. The skills developed in one-step, three-step and five-step sparring are therefore useless and entirely inapplicable. What we see here is a false assumption being made about kata and the nature of criminal violence. The problem is misunderstood. And therefore, that kind of karate is a very poor solution to the problem of self-defence. To be clear, even the most pragmatic version of karate is, at best, only a partial solution to the problem of criminal violence because it will only cover the physical side of things. There is so much more to the topic of self-defence, but that's not really what we're talking about today. Today I want to focus on how karateka often reinvent criminal violence into formal karate-style attacks from an exaggerated distance. They do this so their karate can work, when otherwise it would not work. Instead of improving the solution, they keep it as it is, and seek to pretend the problem is something else entirely. In that way, their pseudo-solution appears, to the uninitiated at least, to be just fine. Karate is far from being alone in doing this though. Other arts do it just as much, albeit in different ways. For example, BJJ has been doing a lot of this recently too. BJJ's effectiveness in one-on-one -on -one fights and its influence on the sport of MMA has led to some seeing it as, and even some promoting it as, the perfect solution to criminal violence. I mean, there's some obvious problems with this assertion, chief among them being the issue of multiple attackers. If we run with the UK figures, then around 40% of all violent crime involves more than one assailant. It's also this 40% that results in the most serious injuries with most of the 60% one-on-one -on -one violence being drunk young males fighting other drunk young males in a way that results in comparatively little injury. BJJ's one-on-one -on -one tactic of taking the enemy to the floor and finishing it there is obviously very problematic when there is a strong possibility of more than one enemy. Any solution that will only work at best 60% of the time and potentially leave you badly injured 40% of the time is no solution at all. While you may be winning the floor fight, you are effectively at the mercy of any third parties. Just like their karate counterparts, some of the BJJ world attempt to get around this by reinventing criminal violence. Once again, we have a pseudo-solution attempting to redefine the problem. The most prevalent and the most recent attempt to do this is to claim that no art has a good solution to fighting multiple enemies, and hence we can just ignore it, and focus instead on the one-on-one -on -one fighting that BJJ is so effective at. They are of course quite right that no art does have a good solution to out-fighting multiple enemies, but that's to entirely miss the point. If we accept, and we should, that a fighting solution to multiple enemies is flawed, then escaping is the solution that the problem actually demands. We once again see some deliberately missing the point on this because many BJJ folks endorse escaping if there is more than one, but maintain that if there is just one person, then their one-on-one -on -one fighting solution is what should be employed. 
This is once again a pseudo-solution trying to redefine the problem in a way that ignores two key facts. Firstly, we should always try to escape if we can, irrespective of numbers. And secondly, in reality, the numbers can change once the situation is underway. It seems fairly obvious, and there's nothing controversial about that one would think. So let's look at these two points in turn. I hope that everyone would agree that escaping is always the preferable option, irrespective of numbers, and the only time you'd not immediately escape is because it's not possible. If you could escape, that would be the better choice tactically and legally. Would you really want to be in court saying, I could have run, and I would have if there'd been him and someone else, but seeing as it was just him, I took him to the floor and strangled him out, and sure, there was no real need to do that, and I could have secured my safety in any other way, but, you know, yeah, it's a tragedy, he was left permanently brain damaged, but in my defence, my BJJ instructor said that I should only run if there was more than one. You know, no one wants to be in court saying that. You run irrespective of the numbers. So if the only time we'd not run is when we can't, and if we accept that trying to outfight them is unlikely to be successful, then the best solution would be to try and create the escape opportunity that is currently not there. To escape, you need space and you need disorder in the group. Putting yourself on the floor with one person gives you neither. Indeed, it puts you in the worst possible place to try and escape from. We need to keep our feet. We need to use strikes to create space, to create confusion. We need to keep moving, and we need to strike everyone in range, not focus on just one person. This is how we create the distance, disorder, and confusion that we need to escape. This is the solution the problem dictates. It's not guaranteed to work, but it's the one most likely to lead to a successful outcome. It is therefore the best solution. So let's look at the second point that the numbers involved can shift in reality. What starts as, or would seem to be, a one-on-one -on -one situation can quickly change. The notion that we should fight using one-on-one -on -one tactics if there is one person, even if those tactics put us in the worst possible position to escape from, but run if there is more than one person, fails to be a coherent position. Not only because of the aforementioned issues, but also because there is always the potential for third parties, and hence any good solution will factor that in. It's not a good solution to simply hope that other people won't get involved when you've proceeded down the path of treating a situation like a one-on-one -on -one fight. Any pseudo-solution that does not seek to escape first and foremost, and that does not seek to create the opportunity to escape in the most efficient way possible if it's not immediately available, and which does not proceed accepting the very real danger of third parties, is failing to understand the true nature of the problem. And as we discussed, this is often because a given group are so invested in their pseudo-solution that they would rather try and reinvent violence, despite the potential danger that puts practitioners in when reality comes around, rather than look at the problem and their art objectively. So we see this reinvention of violence in traditional systems like karate and more modern systems like BJJ. And in pointing this out, I'm not seeking to aggrandize or belittle any given style. It's not a style thing. It's a failure to objectively understand the problem thing. And that cuts across all styles. As I say, all arts have this problem. And I, as a karateka, have been pretty vocal over the years about the problems within my chosen art. I love karate and I want to see it thrive. I don't serve karate when I seek to protect it from the obvious flaws that have arisen in its practice. Likewise, the BJJ practitioners that seek to explain away the obvious problem of seeking to be on the floor when there is a strong possibility of multiple enemies are damaging their art.
Now, there are voices in the BJJ community asking for the self-defence side of things to be given far greater prominence, with a return to concentrating, at, at least initially, on dealing with criminals in self-defence, as opposed to largely ignoring that side of things in favour of always focusing on outfighting a fellow practitioner. This is something that a large number of karateka have certainly been doing over the last few decades with their art. Indeed, BJJ is currently battling with things we karate types have had to deal with for a long time. BJJ is suddenly seeing self-promoted black belts. People been awarded so-called black belts with little or no life testing. Young children been given adult grades and so on. Hopefully they will be more successful than we were because they only need to look at what happened to the traditional art to see where all of this can lead. BJJ should be unequivocally clear that the ground is not a good place in self-defence due to the unavoidable fact that the crime statistics paint a very clear picture that multiple enemies account for a large number of situations and that such situations are the most dangerous. However, they should take credit for the fact that they are the ones best able to impart the skills needed to get back up to the feet should the worst happen, as it so easily can. If they were to add in preemption, escape skills, some core striking skills, and practice live drills that accurately reflect what criminal violence is like, then, for the physical self-defence side of things, you've pretty much got all your bases covered. You can then move on to practice the high-level art, the exciting sport, and the fascinating physical chess that BJJ can so readily be, without having to reinvent the reality of criminal violence to feel justified in doing so. And as a quick aside, there are some prominent voices in the BJJ community, just as there are in the karate community, who are entirely opposed to any form of cross-training. This is a sure sign that art is being put first, and that violence will be reinvented to justify the position that their given art can be all things to all people in all situations. I mean, aside from physical skills, we need to cross-train to find things like studies of criminal behaviour, communication skills, knowledge of the law, and so on. A black belt in any art does not make you a criminologist, a qualified negotiator, or a lawyer. We need to look away from the martial arts for these vital skills so we can get a working skill set for the self-defence side of things. We should also seek the best solution on offer physically, too. Fights can go to the floor, and that's a really bad place to be, so we want to look at judo, BJJ, wrestling, to give us the skills we need to get back to our feet. We don't need the skills to play the game against skilled grapplers, but we can go to the experts to learn these core skills. Those with a dedicated grappling background need core striking skills too, for preemption, facilitating escape, and so on. They don't need the skills to outstrike strikers, they just need the core skills needed for self-defense. From my karate background, that's the way it's always been before protectionism, politics and tribalism found their way into the dojo. To quote Gichin Funakoshi, you know, who's often referred to as the father of modern karate, when he was talking about his two main teachers, he said, Both Azato and his good friend Itosu shared at least one quality of greatness. They suffered from no petty jealousy of other masters. They would present me to the teachers of their acquaintance, urging me to learn from each the techniques at which he excelled. Personally, I see no reason for this process to stop. My own karate has evolved, and it will continue to evolve, because I will always seek what is demonstrably the most efficient way to achieve any given objective. As in so many things, the instant we label something as perfect and refuse to question it in the face of new information, that's the same instant it starts to stagnate and die. Choshin Shibana, like Funakoshi, who was a student of Itosu, and he said, 
A pond which is not fed by a fresh stream becomes stagnant and dies. In much the same way does the enthusiastic karateka seek to continually modify their art. You know, we need that fresh information coming in. It's nothing new. It's, that's a traditional way to do things. Not one generation of the past masters passed their art on unchanged. You know, they, they sought and were encouraged to seek what was the best on offer and to incorporate that into the practice. So I'd totally agree with all of this and I'd never seek to do something that was knowingly less efficient and less effective due to some misguided notion of being true to my style. Because ultimately that's making my style less effective and hence it's a betrayal. When Jeff Thompson taught me his methods of preemption, I adopted them into my karate because they were demonstrably better than I'd got before. When I cross-trained in judo, I was introduced to better ways of, of doing and practicing throws. So I mended my karate throwing accordingly. When I started training with Peter Considine, his methods of power generation and transitioning between strikes made me hit harder and faster. So it was wholesale adopted into my karate. The core of what I do remains the same, but because that's proven its worth to me. But if I can see things that can be better, then I'm going to follow that path. Now the converse of that is also true, which is why I don't practice or teach things like one-step sparring anymore. Demonstrable function, which is tied to a given objective and a carefully defined outcome, is what should be sought above all else. For self-defense, we aim to remain safe and on the right side of the law. We need to understand what criminal violence truly is and then seek the best solution for that. So, what all arts should do when it comes to self-defense side of things is to objectively look at the problem and from there seek the optimum solution. Now what this will mean in practice is that the self-defense aspect of all the martial arts will end up being pretty much the same because the problem will define the solution. Having addressed that need we can diverge to practice the fighting, cultural, philosophical and physical training aspects that our chosen art also addresses. And it's in these things that style will cause greater variation because they are far more subjective. For self-defense, we have an objective real-world problem that needs addressing. So what about the reality-based systems? Surely they are based on reality, by definition. So there's no way they will seek to reinvent violence, right? Well, sadly, they do it too. In the case of reality-based systems, one frequent problem is pretending that we live in a consequence-free world and a seeming love of excessive violence that borders on the salacious. Of course, just as with the prior examples in karate and BJJ, not all reality-based groups have this issue, but enough do to make it a recognisable trend. In civilian self-protection, we have to keep in mind that we will be legally judged for our actions. This is a part of the problem that any good self-protection solution will have to consider. Treating self-protection like a skirmish in a war zone or a no-rules street fight will invariably see you on the wrong side of the law. The oft-recited, better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6, is yet another attempt to reinvent criminal violence, such that the only choices are prison or death. And imposing that false choice, we can avoid the realities that make a street fighting or military pseudo-solution to criminal violence no solution at all. We can keep ourselves safe from criminal violence in a way that sees us remain on the right side of the law. I mean, indeed, the law is written to enable that to happen. Any good solution will factor this in. Any approach that ignores the law or that would encourage you to dismiss it out of hand is no solution at all. One example I recently came across was a reality-based self-defense instructor showing a knife defense method. 
which was functionally questionable in itself. But anyway, this, this te technique he was showing concluded with a knife being thrust into the throat of the enemy while the enemy was still holding the knife. The instructor was confident in stating that he would be fine legally because his fingerprints would not be on the knife, which reminded me of the Master Ken skit along similar lines. Practically, I felt it was way too complex a manoeuvre to work anyway. But in putting that to one side, it was an obvious piece of violent salaciousness, designed more to excite your fantasists than to actually work. The legal claim that you'd have no case to answer due to lack of fingerprints on the knife seems to rely on you convincing the judge and jury that your attacker was either clumsy to the point of being fatally so, or he'd committed suicide mid-attack, perhaps at the sudden and unbearable realisation of all the harm that caused. This is once again reinventing violence. In this case, to provide feelings of power, and perhaps even to indulge a purient love of fantasy violence. So traditional systems, modern systems, and even reality-based systems can be guilty of reinventing violence to give the illusion of effectiveness when there is none, as karate does with its one-step sparring, or they'll do it to promote claims of universal effectiveness, as BJJ does when it seeks to apply one-on-one -on -one thinking and a preference for being on the floor to criminal violence. And we also see this appeal to salacious indulgence in fantasy uber-violence, where inconvenient legalities are never considered or they're just explained away, as reality-based systems often do. All arts of all stripes are guilty of this. Another side of reinventing violence is reinventing culture in order to reinvent the violence within that culture. An argument frequently made in favour of MMA being the optimum self-defence solution is that loads of people watch the UFC these days and hence there's now a real need to learn how to counter knee bars, ground fighting, arm locks, ankle locks because, quote, everybody now knows them. This is an attempt to reinvent criminal violence to look like MMA and by reinventing the problem then MMA is suddenly the perfect solution. The trouble is that, in reality, criminal violence has largely been ineffective by MMA. Criminals know that using numbers, weapons, surprise, intimidation, shock and awe violence and so on remains a way more effective way to achieve a murder, a mugging or assault than any type of armbar. And the crime statistics bear this out. The UFC started in 1993. In the last quarter of a century since then, there's been no signs of this alleged ankle lock epidemic when it comes to criminal violence. There have been no police officers, politicians or sociologists informing us that the criminal use of triangle chokes is now out of control. The crime reports and statistics paint a very clear picture and that picture is that criminal violence is the same as it always was. MMA has had a huge influence on the martial arts and just like the action movies before it, it has also had a huge influence on what the public think a fight should look like. It has not altered the real world of criminal violence though. In many a 1980s action movie, we saw bad guys attack good guys with leaping sidekicks, but the criminals just ignored all that too. It's understandable that we think that our personal experience should apply to everybody else. So, you know, what we experience as reality is everyone else's reality. So this has been my experience, so it follows it must be everyone else's experience too. So if all the fights I have seen look like X, then all fights will look like X. That's not how it works though. And we only need to listen to those who deal with criminal violence on a day-to-day -day basis to learn this. As Sun Tzu famously said, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Martial artists don't know their enemy when it comes to self-defence. And so they reinvent that enemy in their own image, and that's problematic. 
More so when they refuse to look at the evidence that they've got it wrong, preferring instead to stick with the imagined enemy in order to maintain the illusion of competence. Other martial artists also seek to reinvent culture to justify pre-existing practice. Now, I once heard of a karateka trying to justify the practice of one-step, three-step and five-step sparring by maintaining that people actually fought that way in the past. You know, people attacked each other like that in ancient Okinawa. Now, for that to be true, you need generations of incredibly stupid and ineffective criminals. You know, that's the only way such a culture would exist. And there's absolutely no evidence it ever did, and there's plenty of evidence that it didn't. But it was obviously felt better to reinvent reality than to accept such training is problematic. I've also heard tale of some BJJ folks maintaining that in Brazil, no one ever gets involved in other people's fights. So there's no risk of third parties getting involved when on the floor. That would require a unique form of criminal unheard of throughout the rest of the world. And it can be proven false by footage such as that circulated by Wim Demir on his website, and which I reposted on my site, of two people fighting on the floor in Brazil, with one of them being stabbed to death by a third party who runs in from a distance to help when the tide of the fight started to turn. If the guy killed had not played the ground fighting game, if he'd sought to flee, and he had not made the assumption that no one else would get involved, he'd probably still be alive. One thing we can be sure of is that the alleged culture that keeps all fights one-on-one -on -one in Brazil is a dangerous myth designed to justify certain martial practices. It's got no basis in reality. Another, perhaps more obvious part of reinventing violence is to make criminals act like martial artists. We often see this in the martial arts magazines and in online videos where the criminal puts up a guard and then throws martial arts techniques from consensual fighting distance. And we've covered this in previous podcasts, but in this one it's sufficient to say that any good self-defense solution needs to understand how criminals truly act, and it must not seek to reinvent them as fellow martial artists who want a fight. When we truly analyze the problem of criminal violence, we'll find that a good solution will include... A study of criminal behaviour, crime statistics, the law, de-escalation skills, dealing with verbal aggression and deception, personal security, home security, mobile security, awareness, and crucially, what we actually need to be aware of. Personal risk assessments, and a whole host of other issues before we get to the physical skills of preemption, including against multiples, escape, dealing with weapons, protecting others, and so on. What martial artists are prone to do is reinvent criminal violence in their own image. This way they instantly become experts in self-defense too. This is the primary reason why martial arts instructors often make the worst self-defense instructors. They reinvent criminal violence in the image of their own favored martial art. They then put on, in quotes, street clothing, and then carry on doing martial arts while claiming it is now real-world self-defense. When this is challenged, they perform some cerebral gymnastics to avoid having to replace their reinvention with actual reality, because acknowledging reality would reveal their pseudo-solution to be wanting. This is beautifully summed up in the following quote from author George Orwell, with a nod to my good friend Jamie Club, who's one of the true martial philosophers of the modern age, I think. It was Jamie that made me aware of this quote. So George Orwell, writing in 1946, said... We are all capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And then, when we are finally proved wrong, impotently twist the facts so as to show we were right. Intellectually, it is possible to carry on this process for an indefinite time. And the only check on that is when, sooner or later, a false belief bumps up against a solid reality. 
usually on a battlefield. As Mr. Orwell makes clear, reality does not care what you think of it. It refuses to be reinvented in the real world. It can only be reinvented in the safety of the martial artist's mind. Students can be told that reality is as their coach-slash-sensei wants it to be. And if the student believes it, then the coach-slash-sensei is putting their need to sell their art ahead of the student's potential safety and well-being. Sometimes this is done unwittingly, because the instructor was told the same thing by others. However, to me, this does not absolve them of their moral responsibility to check the truth of what they have been told against independent sources. If they did that, they would find there is a very consistent message coming from those who have actually faced violence. And that sadly, this message is largely ignored by martial artists of all stripes, so they can reinvent violence in a way that puts their style ahead of their students' safety. The irony of all of this is that if we started seeking to first fully understand the problem of the true nature of criminal violence, we'd all, by necessity, end up at strikingly similar conclusions. This would enable practitioners of all styles to effectively tick the self-defense box, or at least openly and honestly admit that they are not concerned with that side of things, and as a result have no workable solution to it. We could then move on to enjoy the physical fitness, the sport, the fun, the challenge that martial artists also provide, and you could do so in the flavour that suits your own personal tastes, unencumbered by the need to argue about the primacy of your own style when it comes to self-protection. As it stands, we have many pseudo-solutions trying to redefine the problem which fuels division in the martial arts, promotes tribalism, and distracts from the other worthwhile and beneficial aspects of the martial arts. Personally, I find it totally unacceptable that any martial arts teacher would put their dogmatic devotion to their style ahead of the safety and well-being of the people who came to them for help. What's more important to you, claiming that your art is the ultimate, or genuinely making sure your students have the best possible chance of getting away from bad situations unharmed. If it's your style that matters most, such that reinventing violence is the way you choose to go, even if it means your students being unprepared to deal with the true nature of criminal violence, then, in my eyes, you're a dangerous charlatan who does not belong in the martial arts. If it is the well-being of your students that matters most, such that you are able to be objective about reality, seek and admit your system's current failings, and then change your practice to address reality, then you're doing the right thing. Your students and the martial arts will benefit from what you do. We need methods that will work for most people, and we should not point to the exceptional or the unusual to suggest otherwise. Just because an exceptionally talented kicker knocked out a criminal with a spinning hook kick does not mean that should be the method recommended to everyone. Footage or anecdotes of a situation that did involve taking a criminal to the floor and where no third parties got involved is not proof positive that it can never happen. Remember the UK stats state that around 40% of situations do have more than one assailant and I see no reason to doubt why that wouldn't be the same the world over. We need to look at what truly happens and from there objectively decide what most people are best advised to do. Above all else, we need to remember that reality remains objectively the same, irrespective of what you may want it to be. Understanding the reality of the problem is what will lead to a robust and real solution. A fantasy reality will always and invariably produce a fantasy pseudo-solution. And such a pseudo-solution can only masquerade as a solution when it's in the untested shadows. 
As soon as the light of criminal reality shines on it, then like a movie vampire, it will quickly and invariably be reduced to ashes. Falsehoods can only exist in the minds of men. Reality is always true. The outside world is infused and saturated with truth. It is exactly and unerringly what it is. The objective real world tells no lies. If we acknowledge this and seek to listen to what the real world is saying to us, instead of seeking to replace it with a more convenient inner falsehood, then we are best placed to successfully navigate the real world. We can only reinvent criminal violence in our minds. In the real world, it will remain the same, irrespective of what we think, hope or would like it to be. Disaster is inevitable. If we choose comforting and convenient falsehood, over cold, hard, indifferent reality. Well, I hope you found that an interesting listen and that you feel I did the topic justice. I, as I said at the start, you know, there's no knocking of styles in there. That, that, that If you think there is, I would urge you again to, to re-listen. It's just the fact that Criminal violence is what it is, and what we need to do is seek a good understanding of it. And if something doesn't fit with that, then we're being objective and realistic when we say, well, that doesn't fit. You know, people don't attack each other with oizukis from 10 feet away. They just don't. People don't put a guard and then circle around you looking for openings to throw a shot. Uh, third parties don't stand by where their criminal buddy has been armbarred on the floor. It just doesn't happen. So I'm not being critical of the style. I'm just saying reality is as reality is. You, you can't get away from that or shouldn't try to get away from it. So uh, what I would hope um, we'll see going forwards within the martial arts, uh, not as a result of this podcast, I realise this is just a drop in the ocean, but I'm hoping that eventually it will become obvious to all that if you seek to put style above all else, you're going to have problems. If you're going to seek to deny the problem and real-world experience of people who are experiencing criminal violence on a day-to-day -day basis, if we're going to ignore them and say, no, you can't be right because my style is right, it's going to lead to problems. And it is very unethical because we are then putting the safety or potential safety of students secondary to our desire to say that our style is the best thing ever. And that can't be right. That can't, that can't be healthy. So anyway, I hope you in, in, enjoyed that. And I hope, as I say, that we, something that you found uh, interesting within that. And as always, you know, agree or disagree. I hope you feel that I've articulated my argument well enough to be uh, worthy of pondering over anyway. So, uh, yes, thanks everyone for listening to these podcasts. Again, I always, I've said before, I love putting them together. Uh, very grateful to the support of everyone who's attending the seminars, buying the books, the DVDs, uh, the downloads, uh, subscribe to the app, all that kind of stuff. Because you people are the ones who enable me to put up all the free stuff. So you know, I've never charged for these podcasts and I've no intention of ever charging them uh, for them ever. But it, they obviously do take time to put together. So they're free to listen to, they're not free to make. Um, what enables me to do that is the support that I get from, from other sources. And we don't have advertisers on this podcast and things like that. So and I don't want there to be either. You know, I'd just like to let you know that I really appreciate those who do 
purchase something from time to time because you're the one that enables this kind of stuff to happen and the YouTube channel to happen and all the free articles and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yes, so thank you very much for your support. Genuinely appreciate it, which is why I say it pretty much every podcast. So, anyway, I hope you have a great month until next time we talk and I'll be back with another podcast uh, next month. So thanks once again for listening in and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, Take care now. Bye-bye.